What's going on? It's episode two of the Inside the Eye Bowl podcast, official podcast of the Radiance Technologies Independence Bowl. I'm Director of Media Relations Eric Evenson. Alongside me, former Lou Groza Award-winning kicker and Independence Bowl Chairman Art Carmody. Fun show today. Want to talk a little bit about the rumors over the last uh, you know month or so or a couple weeks about p- possible playoff expansion. We're going to talk a little bit about the events coming up, the youth clinic kickoff dinner with Marcus Spears, touch a little bit on those events. Then coming up later in the show, we're going to talk to my buddy Cole Thompson. He covers the NFL, NFL draft, college football, uh, all for Sports Illustrated and fan-sided. It was a really insightful talk. He's he's one of the best uh, guys out there on the internet. Broke down different players that uh, have played in our game over the past couple years that were drafted this year. So uh, we'll talk to Cole a little bit later here in the podcast. Um, but first, Art, playoff expansion. Uh, I, we, we talked a little bit before we started recording here. It's coming. And I think everyone just, it's not a if it's coming, it's when. And obviously with uh, the last round of playoff expansion to four teams, bowls were impacted. I mean, the bowls are always going to be impacted. The, the postseason is going to be impacted. So that's going to happen again. But and I know we talked a little bit about it before before we start recording. We both think that the Independence Bowl has kind of put ourselves in a little bit be- better position for for playoff expansion than maybe we were a, f- a few years ago. Yeah, I'm really intrigued by the whole playoff expansion thing, whether it goes to eight teams, ten teams, twelve teams. I've seen all the articles. I know you've seen all the articles about what the brackets look like uh, <laughs> if this were to happen. I think the real intriguing thing for me, number one, is – the name, image, and likeness rule that's that's coming as well. That's you know probably going hand in hand with the playoff expansion, and how the schedule is navigated by college football going forward. Yeah. Kids are already playing 15 games. If you go through conference championship weekend and the two two playoff games, if you add, if you expand the playoff, that's adding additional games. We see what's going on in the NFL. They added an additional game. They're now at 17 games, and that was a big deal between the uh, NFL and the NFL Players Association. I think name, image, and likeness tend to go hand-in-hand hand with the playoff expansion because you've got kids uh, playing college football that are not paid playing the equivalent of a full NFL season. So yeah. I'm really intrigued by that. But to your first point, um, you know, I went through the whole conference negotiations you know, with Trey Giglio and the executive committee a, a few years ago, and it was really we were kind of at a cross- crossroads whether we were going to continue chasing the Power Five conferences and trying to get as high as we could in the Power Five conferences or do we pivot and come up with a kind of outside the box structure, which, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. It, it's turned out to be a great thing. Yeah, I think going forward, we have the agreements with the Group of Five conferences, the Conference USA, and the American Athletic Conference, as well as the agreements with uh, Army BYU, and then still having the Power Five conference, the the Pac twelve, mm-hmm. which Pac twelve is kind of leading the charge of, hey, we want this, you know, playoff yeah. expansion. But the, this game, uh, or the, the new negotiations that the Independence Bowl was able to put together, I really think we won't be affected by a, uh, a playoff expansion and what happens to the bowl games that are, you know, fighting the, uh, yeah. fighting the ladder of the Power Five conferences. Yeah, I, I, think all the bowl, I think all the bowls will be affected somehow, but I think it, when you talk about uh, being where we were a couple of years ago, with uh, you know the lower picks in the SEC uh, in the ACC, 
And we'll have a podcast to discuss that at some point. Yeah, we time. yeah we will. Uh, but having being those lower selections, that would have been that would have put us in a situation to be one of the bulls that were probably majorly affected by college football expansion, being in the lower selections of those Power Five conferences, especially if you know. And we'll have to wait to see how everything shakes out with the structure of it, how many teams there are, where they're going to play the games, especially if they play games on campus. That's really going to impact things, especially with the postseason. But being in those lower slots, you know, being the, I think we were the 11th selection in the SEC, 10th or 11th, and then 9th in the ACC. So being those lower selections, that would really would have had uh, more of a major impact uh, when this college football playoff expansion came. So now being in a great spot with Conference USA, the American Conference, and, you know, hopefully in this next round they also get a spot because those, those group of five conference, conferences deserve it. But you're not going to have uh, – you're not going to be in a conference like the SEC where they're getting four or five teams in the playoff and the New Year's Six Bowls. So you're really in a better spot being with – Conference USA, the American, and then, uh, you know, obviously the great partners with BYU and Army, So, as well as the Pac-12, which, as you mentioned, they were the one Power 5 conference that came out and said, we want college football play of expansion. So I think all bowls will be impacted. It's just going to be maybe not as much as what we would have been formerly because of uh, being able to look at the future a little bit a couple years ago during that uh, – during those conference negotiations. So it's an imp- interesting topic. I mean, that's really all we can say about it right now. Like, yeah. It's, I mean, we don't know the structure. We don't know when it's going to happen. It's a very, like, it sounds very easy on paper that, oh, let's expand the playoff. But there are so <laughs> many moving parts to this whole thing. Yeah. So so I'm sure as news continues to come out and I think they're going to meet again this summer and continue to discuss it's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen next year, possibly as early as 2023, but nobody really knows. I think everyone's just guessing at that number, too. So uh, we'll, we'll continue to talk about it, but just want to touch on it as that was kind of the, the big news around college football the last couple of weeks. Some other news, and uh, we have this new segment, Art, that we want to start, and probably not starting on the most happy note here with this segment, but... You played college football at Louisville, Lou Groza Award winner, got to know a lot of great people around college football, coaches, media, players, obviously. Uh, so off the air, a lot with our radio show and, and just talking around, you have great stories and you have great memories of college football and your experiences. So we're going to start a new uh, tradition, a new segment here on the Inside the Eyeball podcast, as it's only episode two. And we're going to talk about some of your experiences and memories and stories. Uh, a little story time with Art. So, as I mentioned, probably not the uh, most happy t- subject to start this on. But recently, college football was hit with a, uh, a really hard, uh, really hard news: the tragic passing of Colt Brennan, former Hawaii quarterback, college football legend. You got to play at the same time as him and got to know him. Uh, going through different all-star games, awards, award shows, and everything like that. So I know you wanted to come share a couple of uh, memories and stories of Colt. Yeah, you know, I saw the news last uh, last week that, you know, unfortunately he had, he had passed away and it was going through what it sounded like some substance abuse issues, which 
uh, is sad in its own right. But, you know, thinking back about Colt Brennan uh, and the times that I've spent around him, you know, I can't help but, but smile thinking of, thinking about it. Because back then in, you know, 2000, 2005, 2006, 2007, Hawaii was a, a program that was kind of on the, the up and up. They threw the ball around a ton. But he was much wa- he was must watch television when he was playing quarterback at Hawaii, um, you know, staying up, uh, staying up, you know, late nights uh, in college. You're going out to the bars and you're you're seeing Colt Brennan sling the ball for 500 yards and five touchdowns in these great games that they played, and uh, got to know him through at the uh, first met him at the, the 2006 uh, College Football Awards show. Um, great guy, but. I really spent a lot of time around him at the 2008 um, College Football All-Stars Skills Challenge, which um, I, I don't know if they still do that anymore, but it was real popular back in the day. Uh, ESPN put it on, and they did a whole bunch of the you know skills events. The quarterbacks would throw at targets and uh, you know obstacle courses and field goal challenge and whatnot. And um, which, by the way, myself and Alexis Cerna, former kicker at Oregon State, uh, we were there a day early and we got to go through the whole quarterbacks. Uh, kind of obstacle course with what they did. And <laughs> I had Alexis get in one of the golf carts that has the big target on it. And you got the, the footballs <laughs> with the chalk on it. And you try to hit the target. Those things are moving so much faster <laughs> than you think. And they're so much harder to hit. But, um, but anyway, so we're, we're there that morning. And uh, first off, there wasn't breakfast. We were kind of dumb, still kind of dumb college kids at the time. They gave us per diem for food. None of us thought oh, that actually meant you have to go and buy your own breakfast. So we're out there that morning getting ready for it. There's no food. Colt Brennan offers to go to have somebody go to McDonald's and he, order 30 egg McMuffins. Uh, we couldn't find anybody <laughs> to do it, but, you know, that's just the kind of guy he was. Hey, I'll, let's go, you know, uh, I'll take care of all the egg McMuffins for you guys. Uh, so we, we get ready to, to start the event, and he had had a, a, a not great senior bowl week before, and Todd McShay had kind of, you know, not had glowing remarks about his performance down in Mobile at the senior bowl, and Todd McShay was hosting this college football all-star skills challenge. He was adding the you know, commentary on, you know, draft prospects where guys were going in different rounds. And so we're doing kind of the taped segment where we're surrounding Todd McShay and Todd McShay's like, you know, this is the what scouts want to see in, in these type of drills and they want to look at the accuracy and whatnot. And he getting he's doing through his whole spiel and he ends with the comment and he goes, players can really increase their value uh, by going through all these drills and the performance they they put on tape today, and without missing a beat, Colt Brennan's right next to Todd McShay, and he leans in, and Todd McShay just get a microphone and says, "Or kill it," uh, <laughs> because Todd McShay just killed every you know Colt Brennan's. We all bust out laughing, and uh, you know the ESPN guys like cut, re, you know redo it. And this Colt was just a, a great guy, and then he proceeds to go out and absolutely destroy everybody in the. QB accuracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, he hit like every target, hit multiple bullseyes, won the event going away. And he was just a, a really good college quarterback. And I uh, saw him a few weeks later at the NFL Combine. And, uh, you know, scouts had wanted to put on a whole bunch of weight. He put on a whole bunch of weight, you know, threw well and um, got a chance to, to play in Washington at the start of his career and was kind of a preseason legend. Uh, led them to on some uh, comeback uh, games, throwing the ball and you know, built a, a quite a following there in Washington. I'm not sure if he was on the practice squad the, the whole season or if he made the active roster, but he was a, a great college quarterback. And, you know, I know a lot of people in the, the college football community were, were saddened um, to, to hear that he had passed away at the you know young age of 37. It was such a shocking 
thing when I got you got that update on your phone and uh, just so sad to for him to pass away at the young age of 37, like you said, but glad that you got to come on and uh, share some of those stories of Colt. And um, I think those have been shared by a ton of people over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so good to uh, good to see all those those great memories of him and uh, the, he'll definitely be missed. Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people respect just what he did and that Hawaii team did in 2007. Kind of started. Well, they, they had a great 2006, and he put up video game numbers that yep. just got beaten by, you know, Joe Burrow. But but he put all those numbers up in like 12 games. Yeah. And it was just ridiculous. But in 2007, they had the entire pressure of they were the group of five. You know, Boise State had done it the year before. Yeah. Hawaii was a team. Okay, can they get to a BCS Bowl? They had the target on their backs the entire season. Not just that, but the actual like state of Hawaii. He was yeah. carrying the whole entire state, you know, on his back. They had a whole bunch of comeback victories that year. You know, they ran up against a, a really good Georgia team uh, in the Sugar Bowl. Unfortunately, that you know, it's a game that a lot of people in Hawaii you know want to forget. But just yeah. the fact that he got them there um, in a, in a crazy you know. 2007 football season where everybody was losing every week. If you go back and look at the the standings that year, it was up and down all you know all year. He was able to lead them on an undefeated season and got them to New Orleans to play in a Sugar Bowl. And I, I don't think people respect just how hard that was. Yeah, 2006, 2007. I was in in middle school at that point, so I remember him putting up those monster not monster numbers, and I didn't remember that it was he actually put those numbers up the year before. That uh, that great run that uh, got them to the Sugar Bowl. So, like you said, I, I don't think people realize how great you know people look at that the stats from that 2006 season and think he didn't have as as good of a year the next year. But no, it's just uh, that team to be able to carry that team uh, to the Sugar Bowl. Uh, I don't think people give that team and and Colt the the respect that that team res- uh, deserves, especially after the Sugar Bowl. They think people just think of that season and look at that Sugar Bowl and say, well, look how bad Georgia beat them and not how good that team was. But, yeah, it's it, it, that was that was tragic to hear about Colt, and um, he'll definitely be missed. And uh, I'm sure people will keep his memory alive through Twitter and just it, it, videos and uh, stories about him. Uh, so hopefully that is the, uh, the case. And I don't know if it was his girlfriend or not in 2006 at the College Football Awards show, but it, she must have been Miss Hawaii because she was one of the most beautiful girls I've ever seen uh, <laughs> in my life. Um, t- talking about you talked about him going into the NFL draft process and you going into the NFL draft process. That's one of the things we want to touch on this week. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, my buddy Cole Thompson from Sports Illustrated and Fansided, he joined us to talk about the NFL draft. There were 11 Total former Independence Bowl players that were drafted this year, including a first-rounder, Gregory Russo. He became the 30, uh, 73rd Independence Bowl player in this game's history to be drafted in the first round of the NFL draft. Uh, there was also five uh, Independence Bowl alumni that were signed as undrafted free agents. So last year we had over 80 players that were playing in the NFL uh, from this game. So you can add that those 16 guys were up to almost 100 guys so really heavy representation uh, from the Independence Bowl in the NFL. So anyway, had a great talk with Cole. Here he is. Back for another set of downs here on the Inside the Eyeball podcast. And I am proud to welcome in my uh, my friend from college, 
Cole Thompson, covers the NFL, covers college football for Sports Illustrated, NFL writer for Fansided, one of the most knowledgeable NFL, NFL draft guys out there. Cole, I haven't uh, caught up with you a while, man. How are you doing? Dude, I'm doing good. I mean, that's a big entryway for me, and I hopefully can live up to the, you know, the, the hype. But, you know, I'm excited to be talking to you. I'm excited about talking about the Independence Bowl, and I think that, you know, our teachers from Alabama would be a little bit proud of us today. I, I think so, too. You know, I, I feel like we're both ma- making it uh, in the world of uh, sports media, and I, I don't know if anybody thought we would have uh, back in Tuscaloosa. But, no, man, I, I really, I, when the NFL draft comes around especially – you're you're one of the guys. As soon as you know, especially for the Steelers, whenever the Steelers have a draft, I'm like, all right, what's Cole saying about the draft? I, I got I got to see because you know I, I just think you're so good at what you do, man. So um, I appreciate that, brother. Yeah, absolutely. But let's get let's get talking about these prospects. What what we're breaking down? I know I got to list these guys. Let's go ahead and start breaking them down. All right, all right. Let's get started. So uh, one of the guys, the first guy, he was the highest pick uh, draft pick from the Independence Bowl over the last couple of years. Gregory Russo. Uh, had a big season 2019 for Miami. Uh, had, had a couple sacks here in the Independence Bowl against Louisiana Tech. He was a guy that he sat out this year because of COVID. And, you know, he was getting really high praise two years ago. And then just he was kind of one of those guys that started to fall as the year went along. What do you what do you think about Russo as a prospect and his fit with the Bills? So I really like the fit with the Bills. I think he's a better 4-3 defensive end than he is a standing 9 technique. But the one thing that I really like about Gregory Russo is he's going to a system where he's not going to have to be asked to start right away. There's all these intangibles that kind of go into being a pass rusher, especially in the ACC. And you don't really have, you know, a full season. Like, you have one full season of great success, and there's a high-risk, high-reward kind of situation. And that's exactly what you're looking at with Gregory Russo because of he only played one game his freshman year because of injury, then came back, and then that next year tore it up. I mean, 19 tackles for losses, 15.5 sacks, two forced fumbles, and then he elected to opt out due to his mother because she uh, had become um, she had become you know so dependent on him because his father died when he was a kid back in his native town of Haiti. So because of all that, he elected to opt out. But with that there's also a lot of question marks. Is he a one-year wonder? Can he actually establish himself as one of the better pass rushers? And he's going to a team in Buffalo who, one, needs pass rushing help. That's the biggest thing I think a lot of people said going into the offseason was Buffalo needed to upgrade their pass rushing. And they could with both him and Boogie Dasham, who were their two first and second round picks, respectively. But I really like that they're not going to have to start right away. He can learn from veterans. Guys like Jerry Hughes, who have been in the league for forever. Guys like uh, Mario Addison, who have played in both a 3-4 and a 4-3, have worked inside, have played on the outside, have played the edge, have done a good job of mirroring left tackles or right tackles. They can give them a, a knowledge of information, soak it up in a way that most people are not going to be able to have that kind of pressure because of all these first-round picks are expected to start right away. With Buffalo, it was a luxury pick to be there at number 30 and get a guy like Rousseau who has all the upside and all the you know the, the, the top-level knowledge of being a quality overall pass rusher. But I look at him overall, and I think if you give him a year, you let him learn the system and don't ask too much of him, Buffalo is setting themselves up to be one of the best teams in the NFL for a very long time. Because not only did they re-sign all their free agents, they also added a little bit of depth with guys like Emmanuel Sanders at wide receiver. But they also have added players like a guy like Russo, who will be there for the next five years to hone in his craft, 
and hopefully be the next great pass rusher of the AFC. Yeah, that's a, that's kind of when people were talking about his name throughout the process. I kind of thought, you know, he's unfairly getting picked apart a little bit because, you know, when he opted out, obviously he's going to be a little bit raw, only really one season played in college. But, you know, you get him into the right system and he has all the ability in the world. And, you know, you get him into that 4-3 system where, uh, you know, he can use his size, his athleticism. I, I, I agree with you. I like that fit. Um, just going down the list here, uh, another guy freak athleticism and this was a guy that rose up the charts uh throughout the draft process milton williams from louisiana tech uh what do you see out of him and do you think he can develop his game to match that athleticism he has oh oh my god absolutely like without a doubt this is one of my favorite defensive players i studied this past year guy is a raw potential player but the biggest thing of all you gotta like about him is he has that speed and he has that agility that most defensive tackles don't have this is a guy who at his pro day at Louisiana Tech blew it up with his 40 time, blew it up with his vertical, had better numbers than Aaron Donald did in 2014. And everyone started saying, well, is he the next Aaron Donald? Let's slow the roll a little bit. He reminds me more of like a Mario Edwards Jr. kind of player. Somebody who, if you wanted to play him in a 3-4, he could be your five technique on the outside, or you could play him in a one-gap system to where he would primarily be your bull rusher, a guy who is more so your pass rushing stylist in the middle rather than just playing the run. So I very much like the fit of him with the Philadelphia Eagles. I know there's a few teams that where he might have been a little bit better, but if we are going to say he could be the next Aaron Donald, what you want to do is you want to get him in a very similar system that Donald had to work with. And that was a 4-3 set during his times in St. Louis where he was asked to play a one-gap system inside. It allowed him to win most battles and eventually establish that one he was a great pass rusher. And number two, that confidence to be one of the top defensive players in the NFL. So a guy like Williams, there's a lot to like about him. The biggest thing of all, he gets a lot of pressures. He does a very good job of winning one-on-one battles. He can cheer uh, double teams. And the best thing of all, I think of, uh, I think he's intangible. You can move him inside, outside. He can play a little bit of both. I think he is a very high upside player and is going to the right system with a guy like Jonathan Gaynor. I, I like to hear that, and you know, Philly loves to take the. Uh, they love to take defensive or defensive linemen, edge rushers. You know, you always hear Philly edge rusher, defensive lineman. They love to stack up with those guys, and I think he'll fit right in. Uh, speaking of edge rushers, there's a, a trio of former independent Independence Bowl players uh, that went in the fourth round. Edge rushers: Chris Rump to the Chargers, Janarius Gener- uh, Robins- Robinson to Minnesota, and Josh Kando to Kansas City. Uh, are, do all these guys kind of fit that mold of freaky athletic, uh, you know, guys off the edge, you know, outside linebackers in the 3-4, or, you know, athletic pass rushers? I think so. The one that I'm most curious for will be Darius Robinson. I think that he's one of those names where I need to see him in the system, but the good news is he's going to a system that is very similar to what was ran in Tallahassee, where I don't have to worry about what he's going to do early on. I view him more so as a a lone 4-3 defensive player. I think he's better with his hand in the dirt. I think it gives him that extra umph needed to be a pass rusher, to work upfield, to make a big-time play on a offensive tackle. But, again, much like everyone else, I think he was a little bit overdrafted, so there's going to be extra pressure added to it, being the 134th pick rather than, say, a fifth or sixth-round pick. Uh, Chris Rump, I think, is going to a good location with the Chargers. They run a base 4-3, but he can also be a 3-4 outside linebacker, which is why I like what they're going to do because, of again, Brandon Staley is coming over from Los Angeles. 
where he had the number one defense that wasn't a 3-4 set. So you can make him my over an intangible guy. And honestly, I don't know much about Joshua Can- uh, uh, you know, Kennard. I-, I know that it, based off what was ran in Tallahassee, it's very similar to what Steve Spagnola will run in Kansas City. But the good news is, is that he will be just a primary depth piece going into the season. There's a lot of good, good talent in there. Uh, you added in a guy like Jerron Reed. You added in Chris Jones. You still have Frank Clark on the deal. So you're not going to really ask much of him in year one. It'll be more so a depth piece that hopefully can establish himself as a long-time, cheap, affordable option in year two. Cole, I kind of have a, a just a general question about when you're scouting edge rushers. These guys, and we talk a lot about what system they're going to fit in, you know, 4-3 defensive end, 3-4 outside linebacker, and I think a lot of these guys can can do a lot, both of those, uh, fit in both of those systems in college. When you're scouting them for the pros, is it as in, is it less interchangeable than what people think to, it's for guys to stand up and, and rush out of the 3-4 or put their hand in the dirt for 4-3? Is it a little less interchangeable than what, you know, a lot of kind of just football fans think? I think that there's some bit of it. It's kind of like when you see a nose tackle try to play a three technique. It, it sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't. It's all based off of can you lose some weight? Can you get more practice in? Uh, what's your scheme fit? I mean, like, there's a lot of players who have never played in that scheme. So somebody like a Jarvis Jones who went to Pittsburgh a few years ago, he played an outside linebacker during his days in Georgia. He played outside linebacker during his days at, um, at in high school. So when he transitioned to the NFL, he was only a 4-3, uh, 3-4 outside linebacker. So you're not sure if he would be effective as a defensive end. But another guy, such as uh, um, Bud Dupree, was a defensive end. And he had a lot of success as a defensive end for Kentucky, then was asked to play the 3-4. It took him about two years to really transition into what he became. But the last two seasons, everyone has been very high on what Dupree was able to do for Pittsburgh. So I think that it really is just based off of scheme. It's based off of, have you ever played the position before? The athletic traits are another thing. If you are a little slower, maybe it's best that you get that extra ump with your hand in the dirt. If you are a little bit more quick, I think that it's an easier transition. But I think every single piece of some defensive line, there's a lot of interchanging parts to where you can say, oh, this player can play a five technique if it's a 3-4 set. And then there's other players who can play only a one technique, whether it be a 3-4 or a 4-3 set. Uh, those are all things that you know you look at in film and you see where they line up specifically and if they will transition. Because it could be just a few snaps. I mean, it could be nine or ten snaps of a defensive end playing a standing nine in a 4-3 set, and you see just that pop come off, and you go, I can see them playing in a 3-4. And then there could be those nine sets where you go, dear God, never let them ever <laughs> be touching the upside. Never let them play in a two-point stance. Let them play in a three-point and just let them work. Yep. Uh, I, want to, I want to stick with uh, pass rushers here. Quincy Roche uh, went to the Steelers in the sixth round. I like the fit. Uh, especially that value in the sixth round. I think he was a guy that was getting some day two talk early in the process and kind of started to fall a little bit um, with uh, after his pro day and just as the draft process went along. What do you think about the fit with Roche and um, what he can do with Net Steelers defense? It's a very good fit. It's a very, very good fit. And the thing I like about him is that he's coming from two systems where he played both kind of roles. He, he, you know, he started Temple. He was defensive end. They moved, into, they moved into a defensive end, but more of an edge rusher from Andy Diaz's squad in Miami. And without Gregory Russo, he really stepped up as the number one pass rusher. So we know that going into the season that there was always going to be some questions with Miami, especially with the pass rush. 
they didn't do great, but what I do like is that you can move a guy like Roche around. They have a need, especially for an extra pass rusher with the departure of Bud Dupree. I think that if you can give him time, he can very much develop into an upside player. But what I really like about a guy like Roche is that you're going to a system where, much like Russo, you don't need him to be a day-one contributor. You just need to see him kind of play that Alex Highsmith role last year. Guy be that third pass rusher, kind of step in. When these when, when J.J. Waters, uh, I mean, T.J. Waters or Highsmith need a break, make sure that you come in and you're able to, to close the gap. You're able to read and react on time. Little things like that will go a long way. And I think that that's what you see with a guy like Roche and what he's going to bring to Pittsburgh in year one. Yep. Uh, sticking on the defensive side of the ball, another guy that went in round six uh, who was getting some day two talk, Hamza Nazaruddin from uh, from Florida State. He seems like one of those high, hybrid defender, chess piece uh, players that the NFL is coveting, but he ends up going in round six. Uh, why do you think he fell a little bit farther than what people thought he was going to go, and what do you think he'll, uh, he'll be in that Jets defense and in the NFL? So... That was actually one of my least favorite picks because of you recently just went out and got Jameer Sherwood, who is a very similar style build player, guy who's a linebacker, but is more of a safety guy, good, good cover skills, and did that for Auburn in round four. So it doesn't really make sense to have two of those players yeah. for your defense. But I do think that, you know, you look at a guy like Jeremiah Wusukoromora, who I thought was a top 10 talent in this class, fall all the way down to number 52. And it wasn't just because of his heart condition. It was, I've talked to several scouts. I've talked to several personnel members. They said that most teams were annoyed with how they didn't know how to play him. They didn't know if they wanted to line him up as a safety. They didn't know if they wanted to line him up as a linebacker. They didn't want to risk taking a guy who's a little bit smaller and not have him transition into a linebacker or take a guy who's a little bit smaller but not as quick and he doesn't transition into a safety. There is a little bit of a, of a danger zone with taking these hybrid players because of you want them to be successful in coverage, but you want them to be able to play kind of close to the line of scrimmage, be more of an interchangeable chess piece. Very similar to when you see a cover one set and you have a roaming ball hawking free safety. Their job is just to stay deep. They're covering everything. If it's man, they're still covering man, but playing a little bit of zone on top of it. It's one of those type of players. So a guy like, uh, you know, Hamash and Nasirlin, I very much liked his film. And I think that he was very good in coverage. I think that he's going to a defense that plays a lot of zone, which is where he did a lot better. But is he going to be a strong safety or is he going to be a linebacker? And I think the biggest thing of all is, is he going to be competing with Jameen Sherwood for that same role? More than likely this year, you're using him as a special teamer. But I do think over time, the Jets kind of double-dipped in a position that didn't need to be double-dipped. And there's probably another team that would have loved to have had the Florida State safety be more of that interchangeable chess piece that they probably – will eventually use him at linebacker. Yep. Uh, a, a tight end that played in uh, the Independence Bowl for Florida State ended up transferring to Georgia, Trey McKitty. He went in the third round to the Chargers. Um, does he fit that mold of that athletic pass catcher that the NFL is looking for? And um, I, I know I think he ended up rising up draft boards a little bit, going in the third round higher than maybe what – uh, people thought he was going to go earlier in the process. What do you see from him, and um, it, it, does he kind of fit that mold? So what I will say is that Brandon Staley coming over from Los Angeles has already worked with an athletic linebacker by the name of Gerald Everett, a guy who kind of played more of that flex position along with a normal tight end, which was Tyler Higby. You kind of have that same thing for Joe Lombardi's offense now in, in Los Angeles with 
Trey McKitty being more of the athletic style tight end, more of an H-back, like a Johnny Smith kind of player, and the Hunter Henry role being replaced by Jared Cook. So I think that when you look at it, they're going to run a 12-man personnel. What you can do is you can probably see him lining up a lot in the H-back role. You can probably see him lining up as an offset player. If you want to play him in the flex, you can. But the biggest thing of all that I really like about this game is he's got good hands. Having good hands as a tight end is so important. You can probably It's easier to teach route running. It's easier to teach what you're looking for against coverages. It's really hard. If you have hands, you have hands. If you don't have hands, you go to defense. That's the old saying. That's what everyone says. So, I mean, he has good hands. And McKinney showed it this past season, especially towards the end of the year, with the emergence of JT Daniels. So, to be able to go from a young, improvising, strong-armed quarterback in Daniels to a young, improvising, strong-armed quarterback in Herbert is a really good fit. I think that it was a good move by Tom Telesco. Go get an extra weapon. Go get a younger weapon at the tight end role, an area that Herbert did rely on a lot last season across the middle of the field. It allows you to be a little bit more effective with that second and third down passing. I very much thought that was a good fit. Cole, a couple of guys that uh, I thought might get drafted uh, that that didn't get drafted that played here in the Independence Bowl, Marvin Wilson and uh, and Kenny Yaboa. What what do you think happened in both of those cases that that they didn't get taken? And uh, uh, what do you think of their chances of breaking the league and find roles on rosters? So I love Kenny Yaboa. I, I thought that he was an absolute stud player, and for Joe Douglas to get him in free agency, I, I mean. We're talking about why New York is one of the biggest winners of the offseason. They went out. They actually said, we're going to build around our franchise quarterback in Zach Wilson. They went and they spent some money by like, getting a wide receiver in Corey Davis. They went and got some extra help with Elijah Moore out of Ole Miss. So also, Moore knows exactly what Yabo is going to kind of run. They stabilized their offensive line, I think, enough for a season. It, it all comes down to Zach Wilson. I think the Jets are still going to be about a year or two away from really contending but they, I think they might have their right quarterback, and they definitely have weapons for him. Um, I don't know why he didn't get drafted. A lot of people that I spoke to said that he was a good route runner, had good hands, great vision, and he's coming from an SEC program that is transcending into what the NFL likes to run a lot of, plays with Lane Kiffin, so that was a little weird. Marvin Wilson was the weirdest one of all. I almost gave him a top 100 grade, and for him to be able to fall out that far, is a little depressing, but he's an excellent run stopper. I think the biggest reason is he doesn't add much value as a pass rusher. So when you look at what he's going to in Cleveland, it's a very similar concept. You don't need him to be the pass rusher. You need him to be the run stopper. You need him to take over that Larry Ogunjobi role. You need him to be able to pair alongside um, Miles Garrett because of what you would do is you would have your pass rusher in Garrett, your run stopper in, uh, uh, in um, uh, Wilson, I forget who the other guy is, but then you'd have your run stopper and Jadavian Clowney on the other side. So basically you would have a pass rush, pass rush kind of style player, and he went to a really good fit with Joe Woods' defense. I have no idea why either one of these two weren't drafted. Wilson is the more surprising one, but I think that both are going to systems that are going to work. Keep in mind that Mike LaFleur loved to run two tight end sets a ton during his days in San Francisco. And they used a lot of physical tight ends and athletic tight ends like George Kittle to get in your boat. Same thing with Joe Woods. You got to go replace that run-stopping style player in Ogunjobi. You're kind of getting that with Marvin Wilson. I think both not getting drafted actually is a good thing for them because you don't have to really worry about where they fit schematically. They're going to teams that probably best fit their skill sets already. Cole, do you think when – and I, I think the answer is probably pretty obvious, but I, I don't think a lot of people understand, you know, the – 
you know, general fan uh, that's just watching the draft or, you know, they read after, I don't think they understand the the process of the seventh round and undrafted. Uh, do you think when these guys are getting to the end of end of the draft, like guys like Yaboa and Marvin Wilson, they're probably they're probably sitting there saying, I, I hope I don't get picked here, right? It's a mix. I think if there's a right team and a right fit and you want to go to them, yeah, I think you want that opportunity. But if it's a wrong team and you know that you don't fit their style or you want to go to like a contender or you want to maybe have your shot, yeah, I think it, it gives you options. Because starting about the seventh round, what you start hearing is scouts or agents or uh, you know coordinators calling players and going, listen, I, I'm not sure if we're going to draft here. We're working on that. And they try and play it up really nicely to where they, you know, we're going to try to do everything we can to get you. Uh, but if we can't, we're going to make sure that you, we are invited to our free agency. We're going to add you as an, uh, you know, as an undrafted free agent. So all these scouts and coordinators and coaches, they are working throughout that seventh round, wondering if this player is still going to be available. So if it's a really good player like a Yaboa or like a Wilson, they're going to have options. A guy like a Shaquem Carter from Alabama maybe doesn't have as many options, and that's why he got invited to the Houston Texans training camp because of no free agency went after him. He had to go after free agency and sign up as an undrafted free agent and undrafted free agent necessity for a tryout this upcoming week. So that's the other thing I think you have to look at. It's one of those where I view the draft process in round seven as if it's a good fit, go ahead. If it's not and you know it's not, at that point, go make your own memories, go make your own status, and wherever the best fit for you is to land an NFL contract, full-time, go ahead and take that option. Yep, yep. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, but I just want to hear, what are, you know, a couple of picks that you thought just were absolute home runs, um, that best picks in the draft, you thought? So, back in round one, my favorite selection was Greg Newsom by the Cleveland Browns. I thought that was a really good fit. Zone kind of covered. You needed a zone kind of cornerback. Guy only allowed 12 receptions on the day, I mean, on the entire year, 96 total receiving yards and one touchdown in coverage. He has been a monster at Northwestern. The biggest concern with him were injuries. I, I mean, this was a guy who probably would have been in that same conversation as the Patrick Sertans, as the uh, JC Horns of the world, if not for injuries. And instead, he's going to go to a team that doesn't really need to use him right away, but they will be able to keep him very much involved in this system. Uh, another pick in the first round, Rashad Bateman. That you need, you have speed with a guy like a Hollywood Brown. You have size with a guy like Mark Andrews. You need stability and a route runner. Bateman fits all of those needs. I thought it was an excellent pick. And I thought that Baltimore was going to really overthink that. They didn't. They made me proud. They were able to stay the course. They landed a heck of a player. Elijah Moore uh, from, you know, Ole Miss to the New York Jets. I, I mean, to be able to get a guy who can run every single route possible and is cleaner than somebody like Florida's Kadarius Tony in the slot is going to be so important for the progression of what Zach Wilson is going to do in year one. I think that just makes a lot of sense. Um, Trayvon Merrick to Las Vegas. I didn't like Las Vegas' first pick in, you know, Alex Leatherwood. Yeah. They made up for it by getting Trayvon Merrick, a, a hybrid kind of defender, has played a lot of snaps at strong safety, has done a lot of snaps at free safety, but Keep in mind, in Gus Bradley's cover three system, they play a lot of three safety sets. They also drafted three different safeties in Divine Diablo, Tyree Gillespie, and Merrick. Merrick played most of his snaps this past season in the slot. thought that was a very good pick. And if I was to go with one last one, 
uh, Amari Rogers from Clemson. This is exactly what you want to add if you're the Green Bay Packers. You want to get a clean route runner who has good hands. And being the son of T. Martin for uh, the you know for the Baltimore Ravens, you're not going to get much of a cleaner route runner than the guy who's teaching wide receivers at the next level. This is a guy who has taught wide receivers from the collegiate level to the professional level. He is a great guy to be paired up with in the slot. That's an area of need I think that Green Bay need to address. He's not a home run threat guy, but they have that home run threat guy in Marquez Valdez-Stanley. They have their physical player in Devontae Adams. So Jordan Love, Aaron Rodgers, getting Amari Rodgers is important because it's adding an extra element to the passing game. And while you didn't get a first-round receiver, getting a guy like Rodgers at this value at what was I think it was like pick number 94 or 95, uh, be able to get him where you did 85, my bad, where, where you get him matters as much as how you get him. So to be able to uh, trade up, make sure that you get the guy, and also land still a receiver that some people had considered a early day two selection at the end of day two. Great value for a Green Bay Packers. Cole, I got one more thing I want you to touch on. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, being uh, the Independence Bowl, we, we've we been in the midst of the talk of um, – Bowl game opt-outs, you know, ever since this uh, this whole uh, thing started, and it's become more sp- widespread lately. I think when bowl game opt-outs first started, it was seen by scouts and teams as a negative. Uh, these guys aren't playing in the bowl games. But as it's become more of a, a widespread thing for players to opt out, um, you know, you see it in the New Year's Six Bowls, the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, um, any bowl uh, besides really the playoff, you see guys opting out. But every year, also, scouts come to bowls, come to the Independence Bowl to, to, to get a look at players. Daniel Jones, a couple years ago, lit up the Independence Bowl, went and had a great week at the Senior Bowl, and really raised his stock. So where do you think teams and scouts kind of sit on this topic now of players sitting out uh, bowl games, and how do you, do you think it still has any sort of impact on their draft stock? So to me, it comes down to two things. Are you a consensus first rounder? And then after that, what is your draft status going into the week? So a team like UNC against Texas a and this past year, to lose the Ami Brown, to lose uh, both of the running backs, Javante Williams and Michael Carter, a, a team like Florida against Oklahoma, to lose Trevon Grimes and Kadarius Toney and Marco Wilson and all these other players. It's a knock because if you still have some really talented guys out there like a Daz Newsome or a Sam Howell or a Kyle Trask trying to prove their stock, and the best way to do so is by having the team complete. But if you are a first-rounder, like a Devonta Smith, and you're playing, or like how Jerry Judy or Henry Ruggs opted out in the Capital One Bowl, at what point is this game going to really matter? I've seen everything I need to see on film. I've seen everything that I need to see analysis-wise, the biggest thing I need to do now is meet with you in person and see your personality. Does your style mesh with our franchise? That is the last step for these first-round talents. So to me, it's one of those where if you know for a fact you are a top 25 pick or you are a name that is basically set up for the future of the NFL, by all means, I have no problem with you opting out. If you are a fringe first-rounder and you're okay with that status, I have no problem with you opting out. But if you're, say, a six-rounder who wants to try and earn that stock and show not just at a combine or at a pro day, oh, I'm really fast, oh, my, you know, I have great hands, I have all that, do it against real competition because if the real competition will stick out. And there's a lot of teams out there that do still keep that in consideration. So 
it really does matter on where your draft value is going into that bowl game. But if you feel comfortable enough, I don't see a problem with it opting out, especially if your film has already spoken enough volumes. But if you don't, by all means, go ahead and play in that game. I know it's a risk because of injury, and we've seen that with guys like Jake Butt and Jalen Smith. But at the same time, you need to make sure that you're solidifying yourself as a difference maker towards scouts. If this game does matter enough to you to make that difference, by all means, go out and do it. Cole, you're you're one of the best, man. You're one of the most knowledgeable football and draft guys out there. Always, uh, always love picking your brain. Uh, tell people where they can find your work. Yeah, if you guys ever want to follow me, it's at fansided.com, si.com. Uh, yeah, si.com. Just go to Fan Nation. Cover the Washington Football Team, the Houston Texans, the Dallas Cowboys, the uh, you know Buffalo Bills, Atlanta Falcons, all that much, much more. And you can follow me on social media at Mr. Cole Thompson. Just by last name, first name, and of course, don't forget the Mister. Cole, you're the best, man. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. Anytime, guys. Love coming on. All right, buddy. We'll talk to you later. It's a new set of downs here on the Inside the Eyeball podcast. Uh, great talk with Cole Thompson right there about the NFL draft. Uh, but now we want to talk a little bit about events. So kickoff K's was this last weekend, the first public event of the Independence Bowl Foundation's uh, year of events. About as 175 runners hit the streets of Shreveport on Saturday, so that was a great event. Uh, but coming up really here soon is the uh, the youth clinic on Saturday, June 5th at Independence Stadium. The clinic is free to uh, kids ages 5 through incoming 8th graders. Participants will get a free T-shirt and lunch after the clinic. Uh, regional college coaches will be here, as well as coaches from D1 training here in Shreveport. Uh, they'll be on hand to coach the kids from 8 to 11 on Saturday, June 5th. Parents can register their kids for the free clinic on our website, RadianceTechnologiesIndependenceBowl.com. Earlier this month, we announced that Marcus Spears would be the keynote speaker of the annual kickoff dinner scheduled for Saturday, July 10th at the Shreveport Convention Center. Uh, Art, this should be a lot of fun with Marcus Spears here. I look forward to the, the kickoff dinner uh, every year. I mean, it was formerly a kickoff luncheon. They moved it to a dinner a few years ago, and that was the right call um, as it turns into a, a great evening. He's hilarious. Um, I watch him every morning on ESPN when I'm getting ready to go to work and <laughs> uh, enjoy his uh, his opinions on uh, college football and the NFL as well. So it'll be a, a real fun evening. And what I love most about the kickoff dinner is it means that college football is around the corner. Because, yeah. like, right now we're sitting here – you know, almost the, the end of May. What are we going to talk about it's, about college the, football? It's going to get hot. It's <laughs> the summertime. But, you know, the kickoff dinner is kind of the, okay, football's around the corner. You know, you, we'll be talking about the, the preseason magazines and the polls and, and whatnot, and I'm really looking forward to having Marcus Spears in Shreveport. It'll be a fun evening. Yeah, and, you know, former LSU player, former Dallas Cowboys player, uh, now you see him on ESPN pretty much every morning, so it'll be great. He's a great personality. I'm sure his speech will be a lot of fun. Coming from South Louisiana, Baton Rouge, just going up the ranks from LSU, winning a national championship with uh, with Nick Saban there, and then going to play in the NFL as a first-round draft pick. He should be a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to that. Tickets to that event are on sale now, $50 for individual tickets, and you can get a table of eight for $400. Get your tickets on our website. Again, Radiance Technologies, IndependenceBowl.com. Well, Art, thank you for joining me. That is going to be it for Episode 2 of the Inside the Eyeball podcast. I hope you guys are enjoying the content we're putting out. Uh, We'll continue to bring more fun guests, talk about all the topics of college football. Make sure to describe, 
wherever you can listen, Spotify, Google Podcast, Anchor Podcast, wherever you listen. Make sure to subscribe and continue to listen to the Inside the Eyeball podcast. Also share it on social media. We'll be putting out uh, all the episodes on our Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Indie Bowl. You can follow all those accounts. So thank you guys for listening again, and we'll see you next time here on the Inside the Eyeball podcast.